0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 this morning. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so far we've seen Paul introduce himself as well as some of the themes that he's going to develop throughout the rest of this letter. But now in verses 10 through 17, he addresses a, a specific problem uh, more directly. Uh, So far, the introduction has been uh, generally positive. Um, But now, in verses 10 through 17, Paul is going to turn to deal with a specific problem that was plaguing the Corinthian church. Uh, That information has uh, reached Paul, the information about this particular problem, has reached the Apostle Paul by two different ways. Um, eventually we'll get to 1 Corinthians 7 and see that the Corinthians have actually written a letter to Paul asking him questions about some of the challenges that they're facing, some areas of confusion and controversy, and they've asked for Paul's input and Paul's feedback. But another source of, of information uh, you'll notice is in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11. Uh, some of Chloe's people, presumably members of the Corinthian uh, church have been with Paul and have been eyewitnesses to some of the problems in Corinth, and so Paul is responding here not just to their letter, but to firsthand accounts of issues in Corinth. And so, just imagine with me for for a moment, uh, Paul's letter finally arrives in Corinth, and and here you are on this day that the letter has come. And uh, perhaps one of the elders of the Corinthian church stands up and says to the gathered congregation, okay, we've received this letter from the Apostle Paul, and I'm now going to read it to you. And it opens up, Paul called to be an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. And everybody's thinking, great, Pray, praise God, this is tremendous. We're finally going to get some answers to our questions. And and you remember Sosthenes, uh, Once a ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, and he has been marvelously converted. Praise God. It's all very encouraging. And then Paul even goes on in verses 4 through 9 to offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God for his gracious work among the Corinthian believers. But then the elder gets to verse 11 and reads these words. It has been reported to me that some of Chloe's people are telling me that there's division among you and suddenly the tension in the room mounts doesn't it and all eyes turn to Chloe's household and that uh, Chloe and the household no doubt have their heads down looking at their feet perhaps slouching as low as they can to disappear from gazing eyes no doubt this was a tense moment in the Corinthian fellowship but Paul addresses head on the problem before them and and isn't it isn't it striking and isn't it, I think, worth noting that of, all, of the many problems that the Corinthian church faced, the first issue that Paul wanted to address, what was first on his mind, was the problem of division and disunity in the church of Jesus Christ. That's our theme for today, division and disunity in verses 10 through 17. And as we read this passage in just a moment, I want you to be on the lookout for two things in particular. First, Paul's treatment plan, or excuse me, first Paul's diagnosis, which is the deep problem of division and disunity. And then secondly, Paul's treatment plan, which comes to us, I think, in the form of a principle that we derive from the rhetorical questions that Paul asks in verse 12, And we'll also see this principle at work in verses 13 through 17 when we look at Paul's own example of the principle applied. Okay, so be on the lookout for those two things. But let's go ahead and read God's word together now. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? it's true, isn't it, that we live in a deeply divided society. Uh, we, we live in a culture where the, the schisms, the divisions, the rifts seem to be growing deeper, uh, more obvious. There are divisions along all kinds of lines, ethical, social, political, economical, racial, education, and so on and yet, you know one of the mottos of our country is e pluribus unum which means out of the many one it's it expresses the desire of people's heart genuine desire for unity and yet it seems as though no matter how hard we try in our society that unity remains an ever elusive goal and the division in our own time seems to be intensifying doesn't it and so it shouldn't surprise us that division and unity is a problem that sometimes rears its ugly head. Not just out there in the world, not just out there in our culture, in our society. But yes, even sometimes in here, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the household of faith. And that was certainly the problem in the church of Corinth. You see that very clearly if you look at verses 11 and 12. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They are all quarreling about the particular merits of their own parties. A party spirit has taken over the church of Corinth. And what Paul calls in verse 10 a division is Divisions is the word from which we get our word schism from. There are schisms tearing the church apart. And I think there are two factors in particular that cause these destructive tears in the fabric of the Corinthian fellowship. And they're both in verse 12. So first of all, as, as you can see on the surface of verse 12, there is what we'll call the cult of personality the cult of personality. But but lying behind and, and underneath, and I really think empowering, driving the cult of personality is what we will call the cult of personal pride. And that's also, I think, seen in verse 12. So the cult of personality and the cult of personal pride, both of them are there in verse 12. But let's think first of all about the cult of personality. So these four groups are claiming to be you know, the standard bearers for a particular much-loved leader or perhaps an approach to living the Christian life. And so first of all, there's the Paul party. Now remember, Paul was the one who planted originally the Church of Corinth. And, and these folks claim to be the, the stalwart defenders of the original Pauline vision for the Corinthian congregation, right? We we are the the Paul people, loyal to the good old days and the good old ways. Um, That's not how Paul would have said it. That's not how Paul would have done things. Things were just so much better when Paul was around. Those are the sorts of things I think you would have found upon this group's lips. But then in addition to the Paul party, another party arose within the Corinthian church, the Apollos party. Now, according to Acts 18, verse 24, Apollos came from the city of of Alexandria, and Luke tells us that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and fervent in spirit. He he taught and spoke and preached with, with eloquence. No doubt he was a gifted preacher, someone that people enjoyed listening to. But he also taught accurately the, the things concerning Jesus. And Apollos eventually made his way into the region of Achaia to, to the city of Corinth. And there we're told that he greatly helped those who by grace believed. So he, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public by showing from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And so Apollos was, we know he was a great preacher, a, a gifted debater apparently, And uh, a skilled orator of sorts, a passionate, dynamic, earnest expositor of Holy Scripture. And, And the Church of Corinth was richly blessed through his ministry. And so I think it's safe to say that all the members of this party were, if I can put it in our own terms, these were folks who were always downloading Apollos' sermons. Um, always retweeting Apollos' quotes from his sermons. They were Apollos' followers. They liked him. They liked his gifts. They liked his preaching. Apollos was their standard by which they assessed all other preaching and the standard for which, by which they measured how people ought to live the Christian life. Paul actually talks about himself and Apollos and the founding of the Corinthian church In chapter 3. If you flick forward to chapter 3 and take a look at verse 6, you'll see there Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. And so the the first wave of gospel ministry came through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And then a second wave of gospel ministry came through the, the ministry of Apollos. And God blessed both men's ministries and through it caused the church to grow. But there were those in the church who instead of seeing both ministries as the work of God among them, God getting all of the glory for it, were instead looking to Paul or to Apollos and claiming one or the other as the paradigm. the lens through which to evaluate everyone's work and worship and convictions and style and attitudes and stance. But then there was yet another group that arose in the Corinthian fellowship. Apparently, some various members had had moved to Corinth, who had been influenced not by Paul, not by Apollos, but by Cephas, that is the apostle Peter. And uh, for them, Cephas was their, their head guy. He was their celebrity apostle, their celebrity preacher. And then there's this one more group, and I think I've shared this with you in the past, that I actually think this was the worst of the bunch, right? The, the Jesus party. Um, these were the no creeds but Christ kind of guys. The, these were the folks who, had, who, who kind of stuck up their nose and looked down on everybody else. You got all these squabbles about. Paul and Apollos and Cephas, we're the the Jesus people who get things right. And so there's this growing rift between these different groups appealing to Paul, Apollos, Peter, even Jesus, but but like like their brand names, uh, attaching their names to these popular names in order to somehow give warrant and significance to their own opinions. But why were they doing all of that? And maybe ask the question as well. Why do people do that today? And that gets us to, I think, the second deeper cause of division. Because behind the cult of personality, lurking beneath the cult of personality, is the cult of personal pride. There is one thing that unites all of these four groups, isn't there? I wonder if you noticed it in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12 with me again, and look at how Paul puts it. Each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. You see what it is they all have in common? Not their favorite leader, but instead their massive egos. They, they seek to enlist their favorite apostle or preacher or individual, attach their names to the names of their chosen great one, in order to somehow justify their own opinions, and bring glory to themselves. And I think this kind of thing, it's just, it is just—it is so prevalent today, isn't it? Perhaps we've seen others do something like this, or perhaps we've done it ourselves, where maybe we've dropped a name here or there to establish our credentials or our convictions. Maybe we've, we've said, in essence, well, this has to be right because so-and-so said so right? Uh, With with the access, here's another way I think this can manifest itself. With the access we now have to online sermons, it's not uncommon for Christians today to, to really latch themselves to their favorite celebrity preacher or teacher, and that person, maybe without them even realizing it, that person becomes the standard by which everything is judged and heard, And they might say things like, well, I don't like the teaching of so and so because they wouldn't say it like that. But you see what's underneath it all? It's it's ego, right? Uh, It's not really about Dr. So and so. It's, It's about me. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Because behind the cult of personality lurks the cult of personal pride by which we establish ourselves and our own convictions. As the final standard. But then notice verse 10. Uh, Not only the depth of the problem of division. But now also the the, the heights of the unity to which the Corinthians were called. You see the real dimensions of the challenge before them. Verse 10. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's a high standard. That word united, it's, it's an interesting one. It's the word that was used of fishermen, mending broken nets. It was also used at times to, to describe someone who had uh, a, a bone pulled out of socket and being put back into place. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians that you're not to be torn apart by schisms, but you're to be mended together in, in love, not to be a church whose members are all out of joint and out of socket and not able to function as a whole unified body ready for action. And notice how far this unity is to go. It, it's not surface or superficial. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, that you all agree. Now that phrase, you all agree, could be translated as simply that you all say the same thing. That you all confess the same truth. Share the same convictions. You see, their, their unity is not the product of doctrinal minimalism where we we find the lowest common denominator and and look the other way on all other questions of truth so that we can just agree to disagree and get along. No, their unity is to be founded on a shared commitment to a confessed body of truth preached among them. And so they're they're being called to speak and confess the same things but it goes even deeper or higher than that it's not as though they were to say well you know I guess I'll keep my mouth shut or I'll just line up my words but I'll just keep my own private judgments look at how much further it goes unity touches not just on what they say but on what they think he wants them to be united in the same mind in the same judgment And and so they were being called here by Paul to discipline their minds and submit even their own private judgments to the authoritative word of God. And that, my friends, that is a very, very hard, difficult thing to do if we're honest with ourselves. Because it is very easy for us to be shaped by the culture around us, the people around us, the the upbringing that we had. And it's very easy on the basis of being shaped by those external forces to conclude that our convictions are gospel. And that when somebody disagrees with us, well, they must not be really taking the Bible seriously. Um, And so Paul is calling us here to something that's really challenging, really hard for each and every one of us. Because he calls the church to submit its thinking and its convictions together to the word of God rightly understood. Not misused, not misapplied, not taken out of context, but properly understood and applied with wisdom. And so this is not a superficial, merely verbal consensus. There's a call to a deep heart, mind, and mouth unity that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. And so now we see the dimensions of the challenge confronting the Corinthian church. I mean, divisions after all, uh, fueled by ego, are easy, aren't they? Divisions fueled by ego are easy. But the kind of unity to which Paul is calling us is a standard that takes hard, deliberate, humble Work. And it's not something that happens overnight. This is something that we are to aspire to, to work towards, to to fight for, requiring humility, not assuming that you and the people that you identify with have all the right answers. That is a tough, tough call from the Apostle Paul. And so thankfully, Paul doesn't simply leave us with the diagnosis, right? The problems of call of personality and the call of personal pride and just command us hey Corinthians do better hey hey believers at Trinity Presbyterian Church do better that's not the message here he also comes with a treatment plan with some helpful principles which I think if we learn to apply them faithfully will shatter our divisions and maintain our unity in Christ and so here's the principle in verse 13 take a look at it with me They're all boasting about their favorite celebrity preachers and apostles. And look at how Paul responds. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? These three rhetorical questions, all of them demanding a negative answer. Uh, No, Christ is not divided. Uh, n- no, Paul was not crucified for us. No, we were not baptized into the name of Paul. And, and first of all, you see what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to redirect the Corinthians' gaze off of these celebrity preachers and apostles and off of themselves and fix their gaze once again on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is not divided right as though we could apportion parts of him among ourselves taking a piece for our own particular party maybe it's a strange question to ask but i'm going to ask it anyway how many christs are there how many christs are there is there a is there a christ for the paul party and the apollos party and the cephas party maybe maybe a special jesus portion of jesus for the christ party No, there is is only one Christ, and therefore, this is the logic here, therefore, his spiritual body must also be one. Christ is one, so those who follow him must also be one. And Paul wasn't crucified for us, Paul's saying. It was the the Lord Jesus Christ who, who gave himself for us. So he's saying to the Corinthians, why are you boasting about Paul? Why are you talking about me when we have... Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Why are we boasting in Mr. So-and-so? Why are we talking so much about them when we have someone so much greater, so much better to be dwelling upon? Uh, This reminds me of, um, I had a friend of mine who went to a church for a number of of years. And uh, at one point he told me, he said, you know, Jared, sometimes it feels as though The pastor talks more about this particular figure in church history than he does about Jesus. I'm keeping the things anonymous because we don't need to know identities here. And I thought, man, that seems like an exaggeration. And then I actually listened to one of the sermons and I thought, well, if this is indicative of how most sermons sound, then yeah, there's a a lot about this particular figure in church history that kind of overshadows (laughs) the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's raising this question. Why, why are we so fixated on these mere men when we have Jesus Christ before us? And we weren't baptized into Paul's name. So, so what in the world are you doing boasting in Paul's name when your baptism, you remember your baptism is a sign and seal, not that you were baptized into the name of Paul, but that you were planted into union with Jesus Christ. So that Jesus is everything to you. I mean, what is Paul? That's his argument here. And so he's trying to get the Corinthians to ask themselves the question, why boast in men when you have Jesus Christ? It it is a misplaced faith to focus on the leaders Jesus uses instead of Jesus who uses the leaders. And so here's the principle that we need to apply, dear friends. I wonder if you see it. Prideful boasting in the parties and and divisions that we create will always shrivel and die when our great singular boast is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our divisions and our prideful egos will shrivel up and die as Christ becomes our all in all. Treat division, Paul is saying, then by a superior pursuit of Christ, by recognizing you're united to Him, the Christ who is crucified and raised for you. You are baptized into His name. That reality leaves no room for party spirit and it destroys prideful egos. And, and then on the basis of, of the unity we have in Christ, you see on the firm basis of the unity, that Jesus Christ has secured for his people, then we can answer the hard call to work out that unity in our confession and in our shared convictions. It's what Jesus Christ wants us to do, dear church. let's, Let's take this passage and just turn it to ourselves. Paul is saying, apostle of Christ Jesus. So Jesus is saying to us, by his name, let there be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That, my friends, is what we're to aim for. So let's remember we're we're united to the same Christ who, who loved us and gave himself for us. And let's humbly work towards this kind of unity. And as I said before, Paul is is a great model of this very thing because he applies the principle to his own case. I think that's the point, by and large, of verses 14 through 17. Take a look at them. Having mentioned baptism, uh, Paul immediately backs up a little. He wants to make sure that he's not misunderstood. He knows that he did, in fact, baptize some of the Corinthians, only Crispus and Gaius, and then he. Uh, has a memory apparently, oh yes, and also the uh, family of Stephanas. Uh but beyond that I didn't baptize anybody else. And so no one can be, no one can claim to be baptized into the name of Paul because Paul hardly baptized anybody to begin with. And once he's gotten that straightened out, look at what he says. Here's the guiding principle of Paul's life and ministry. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul is the model of the very principle that he's calling us to put into practice. And he passes it, well, he presses it all the way through every facet of his ministry. He he avoids a a heavy emphasis on sacramental rites or perhaps even a sentimental view of baptism where Somebody might say, Well I you know, I, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. I've got this special connection with the Apostle Paul. And he intentionally avoided uh, oratory in his preaching, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, he says, lest people come to say, Well, you know, you really haven't heard preaching until you've heard Paul. You've got to hear Paul. You've got to hear Paul preach. Paul's allergic to that way of thinking and speaking, and he's doing everything he can to ensure that when he engages in gospel ministry, that he is directing the attention away from himself to Jesus Christ and his cross. He rejects, therefore, manipulative, attention-grabbing methods of preaching. He does not want attention resting upon the minister, but upon the message of Christ and him crucified, because that's where the power lies, right, dear friends? The power isn't in the preacher, but in the one the preacher preaches, namely Christ Jesus crucified and raised. And so it's not in a high view of sacraments or liturgy or ritual or form, but in Christ who meets us by his spirit as we gather together in his name. And so, my friends, let the good news about Jesus, what what he's done for us in his love, let that occupy our attention and captivate our minds and, and grip our hearts. And when that happens, you see, I think we will find that ego begins to die and with it our divisions crumble. I mean, isn't that the case when we I mean, just for ourselves personally, when we come to the cross of Christ, when we dwell upon Calvary and what it means for us, we think upon Jesus Christ crucified for us, bearing bearing the condemnation that we deserve. The fact that we are without any hope at all, save in God's sovereign mercy manifested on the tree. See, there's nothing, when we look at the cross and we see Christ crucified, we realize there is nothing, absolutely nothing, to boast about in us. And there's really absolutely nothing to boast about in anyone else. Because at the cross, we see God's love poured out for us. and, And because of what Jesus Christ did, we are saved he has done it all so we take no glory in ourselves and we fix our gaze upon christ egos die and divisions crumble and so dear brothers and sisters called together to be saints as paul calls the corinthians here Let, let's remember that's who we are called together to be saints in christ jesus a people United to Jesus who who died for us and into whose name we have been baptized so that our identity is fixed and found in him and him alone. And because Christ is one, we are one. Because there aren't more, there isn't more than one Christ. There's only one Christ and because we're united to that one Christ, in him we are are profoundly one. And that has implications then for how we think and how we speak and how we live with one another. So let there be no divisions among us. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified destroys the cults of personality and pride. And so together in the gospel, let's pursue this kind of unity, this unity of mind and judgment. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we, uh, we confess that oftentimes um, our prideful egos has led us to speak and act in manners that are contradic- contradictory to Christian unity, and we pray that you would forgive us and this morning fix our eyes afresh upon Jesus Christ and him crucified and there put to death our egos and our sinful divisions, and remind us again afresh today that as we are united to Christ, we are also profoundly united to one another. And help us to work that out as a congregation in what we confess and our own convictions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.